The Texas population has grown at a rate of nearly 16% between 2010 and 2020, more than double the growth rate of the U.S. as a whole. And over the last 20 years, migrants from other countries have accounted for about a fifth of Texas's growth, while domestic immigration has increased steadily over the past two decades, spiking considerably in 2020 and 2021. It is unruly to have the system that works now. It doesn't work for the migrants, it doesn't work for Texas, and it doesn't work for the United States. It's in the best interest of the country to figure out a system that does work. Last year, the state became just the second to eclipse 30 million people. Growth has been concentrated in Texas's four largest metropolitan areas, but the growth rate along the border hasn't trailed by much. The region saw an increase of more than 13% in a similar time frame, according to the Texas Department of State Health Services. There is a lot of discussion about the cost of undocumented immigration to the health system. And there's a lot of talk about the strain on resources by this influx of people coming into Texas and not just from, you know, the you know foreign nations, but also from other states, you know, California, places like that. It's a it's a complex equation, I would say. Complex indeed. So let's dig into it. I'm Chris Blake, and Texas wants to know how immigration impacts our state's economy. So let's break this down into a few sections. We'll cover job growth and the state budget, but let's start with the way immigration affects health care. The influx of people is a strain on the on the tech on the on the economy. Um, it's also a boon for the economy, right? So um, you have a you have an increase of people who are more likely to need more public services depending on where they locate. That's Karen Brooks Harper. She covers the state budget and health and human services for the Texas Tribune. It does create a strain on just sheer services. You know, you get more people. They're not all going to be self-sufficient. They're going to need some public assistance. They're going to need emergency care, especially depending on what jobs they end up in, you know, construction, you know, field work, that kind of thing. So, you know, there's been estimates that uncompensated care total, including, you know, to include the the undocumented population has been estimated anywhere between 60 and 90 million dollars each year for those emergency Medicaid services we were talking about. You know, the attorney general's office a few years ago, not that long ago, estimated up to 700 million a year for uncompensated care in addition to that Medicaid you know, emergency. What is the relationship between immigration and health care in Texas? I think there's a hundred ways to answer that question. Stacey Pogue is a senior policy analyst with the nonpartisan public policy nonprofit, Every Texan. So of all of the ways you can talk about, like the intersection between healthcare and immigration, the piece that every Texan has looked at since our founding in 1985 by the Benedictine Sisters of Bernie, Texas, is access to healthcare for immigrants. So you probably know, maybe your listeners know that Texas has the highest uninsured rate of any state, right? 18% of Texans are insured, 5 million Texans. No question that folks who lack health insurance are going to have more barriers accessing care, affording care, getting regular source of care. Immigrants, whether they're lawful immigrants or undocumented immigrants, will hit every single one of those barriers, plus a long list of other barriers that make it much harder for immigrants to access health care, again, regardless of immigration status. We talk about Texas being having the highest number and highest rate of uninsured people of any state in the country. 
what does that mean for the taxpayer, the everyday person who is contributing to the system? Where does the burden fall when it comes to people who are uninsured receiving healthcare because they're not getting turned away? So two things. Our healthcare system is is one we share. It's a system of hospitals, doctors, clinics that take care of all of us, take care of everyone in Texas. And we rely, that system relies jointly on funding for, through our taxes, through our health insurance premiums and the payments from our health insurance and from our out-of-pocket payments, You know whether we have insurance or not, what we're charged at the doctor's office or at the hospital. And that shared system is only going to work effectively if it meets all of our needs, right? And so taxpayers are on the hook for a healthcare system that has millions of uninsured folks who are accessing services but have no way to pay for them or can't fully pay for them. Those those shortages are made up through through tax payments. One thing Texas has not done in the health sector is expand Medicaid. In fact, it's one of just 10 states that has not done so. So Medicaid is our public health insurance system for low-income children, seniors, and individuals with disabilities, and pregnant women in Texas, right? So it doesn't care for everyone. It covers certain populations. And it's a foundation, right? It's a, it's a bedrock of a lot of our healthcare system. Medicaid does not cover today in Texas, in general, adults. How would Medicaid expansion impact Texas? Medicaid expansion, without question, is the single most impactful decision the Texas legislature, the Texas governor could make to make a big dent in our uninsured population. It would not cover every every one of that 5 million uninsured, no question. But there isn't a more impactful sweeping policy that is available on the shelf that is fully federally financed for a certain period of time and and with no would have no negative impacts on our state budget. What are kind of the reasons that lawmakers have given for not expanding? So you hear lots of reasons from the governor, from the lieutenant governor, from some some folks in state leadership for not adopting Medicaid expansion. And frankly, those have changed over time. But they often are a mix of cost concerns, not what it would actually cost the state of Texas right now. States that have adopted Medicaid expansion actually find that it's often a big boost to their state government. But this concept that regardless of the really favorable financing mechanisms right now. And by that, I mean, the federal government will pay for almost all of our Medicaid expansion through federal tax dollars. So it's not through the state budget that that state leaders are proposing that those arrangements can be changed in the future. Congress could change its mind in the future and say it's all the states that states have to pay for it. And that's not technically untrue. Congress can pass a law to do anything. Right. But we do have a really, really long history with Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program. And Congress hasn't backed down on their commitments to the federal piece of those programs ever. And we hear now about Medicaid unwinding to go more into your wheelhouse. So we see that phrase, but what does it mean? That's a good question. So during the duration of the pandemic, Texas Medicaid and Medicaid programs in every state hit the pause button on disenrolling folks from Medicaid. We made sure as a country that folks weren't going to lose their Medicaid health insurance coverage during an unprecedented pandemic. But at this stage in the pandemic, Congress has said, okay, it's time to start reducing those protections. States now need to recheck eligibility for every single person on Medicaid over the next year. So us policy wonks are calling that unwinding, but it just means the process every state's going through to recheck eligibility for everybody on Medicaid. And it's going to be a big job because we haven't fully done that in three years and our state eligibility system's understaffed. So that's underway now. What, if any, impact on 
recent immigrants here, whether legally or illegally, does Medicaid unwinding have? So there is an intersection here that kids, children who are immigrants, if they are lawful immigrants, are eligible for Medicaid and eligible for CHIP in Texas. So they will be having their eligibility rechecked just like everybody else on Texas Medicaid. But because they're immigrants or kids in mixed immigration status families, they're going to hit a lot more barriers. They are going to be subject to some immigration eligibility rules, which are remarkably more complex than they are for a citizen. So it's a lot easier to get a denial from Medicaid that's in error because the policy is just so hard for eligibility workers to process. And we help with those all the time. We see them all the time that folks are kicked out of Medicaid in error who are lawful immigrant kids or kids in mixed immigration status families. So that's healthcare. And while we could certainly devote a whole episode to Medicaid expansion alone, we'll keep it moving with a focus specifically on immigration from Mexico into Texas. If you go back a couple years ago to look when 15,000 Haitians showed up in Del Rio, Texas, I'm a native of Del Rio and the population of Del Rio is 30,000 people and 15,000 people show up under a bridge and there's no infrastructure. There are no restrooms. There's no food. There's no fresh water as to where they were. No way to um, change the diaper of a young child. So we had to import all of that infrastructure just to process for Border Patrol to process all those people, get their identification down pat, feed them, house them, uh, prevent them from getting heat stroke, Uh, because it was in the middle of summer. That's Eddie Aldrete. He's a business consultant who has also served as chair of the National Immigration Forum and is the host of the Beyond the Bite podcast. What he's referring to is September 2021, when thousands of Haitian migrants crowded under the International Bridge in Del Rio. And so that is a cost that is borne not just by Border Patrol, but also by local communities. All the nonprofits, whether it's Catholic Charities of San Antonio or Eagle Pass or the Rio Grande Valley, or if it's um, all of these other, there are a lot of nonprofits that cities lean on uh, to help these migrants recharge their cell phone, find how to get a hold of their family, uh, direct them to where the bus station is so that they can get a ticket and go meet up with their family until their court date arrives as to when they have to state their case and prove their need for asylum. That border crisis is relevant this year because some experts predicted similar numbers when Title 42, an emergency health measure put in place during the pandemic, expired in May. I think it turned out to be less than, a lot less than what people were expecting. I think there was an expectation that a a tidal wave of migrants were going to be coming across our southern border, and that did not turn out to be the case. You do have heavy rushes in certain parts, but not from Brownsville to El Paso. You don't have. Do experts have any reasons for why they think that is? So the one thing to remember about immigration is that it's a push-pull phenomenon. Uh, They're being pushed from their home based on economic or political unrest or instability in their home country. And they are also pulled to the United States because of job opportunities that we may have, Um, especially today, where we see labor shortages across the country. um, They realize there are jobs that need to be filled. And we have a unique phenomenon that 
in a post-COVID world, a lot of people chose not to go back to work and live on less household income than they did pre-COVID to help satisfy that work-life balance. So has the U.S. lost the pull factor that Eldrete is referencing, or is it simply a numbers game? It's basic math that in 1960, Mexico's fertility rate was 7.0, where the average Mexican uh, female was having seven children. And today it's less than 2.0. No country in the history of the world has experienced such a decline in fertility rate than Mexico has. In the United States, it takes, well, everywhere, it takes 2.1 children, 2.1 births um, to reach replacement level. So they're replacing um, the parents. And in the United States, we have fallen below that. We're in the 1.75, 1.8 range. And so sooner or later, if you're putting less gas in the tank, eventually the car can't go anymore and our economy won't be able to go. He says the drop below replacement level in birth rate can have long-term economic impacts. Economies are built on foundations of growth and no country, no company is built on a foundation of stagnation or decline. So what we've seen in Japan, what we've seen in China is that as populations begin to decrease, you have this rapid downward spiral because young people see fewer and fewer opportunities. So they make the problem worse by leaving the country. That has catastrophic economic consequences, and it's what we do not want to see here in the United States. Is there a way to narrow that focus to how it affects Texas specifically? Or is Texas, at least in the short term, insulated a little bit because people in the working age group are moving here because their companies are moving here? So we do have that uh, unique economic phenomenon that we are a great state in which to do business. And as a state, we benefit from inward bound migration, people coming here. We're the number one destination for one-way U-Hauls. So we have people moving here from um, California and Nevada and other states So we benefit from this influx of labor. So we don't suffer as badly as the nation suffers, but it's a problem that needs to be fixed. Uh, Immigration has not seen uh, an overhaul in 37 years. And regardless of what political party you are, if you care about the future of the country, it's one where both parties need to roll up their sleeves, identify the specific problems that we have now, today, and find a solution that works. The Real Estate Center at Texas A&M University released its second quarter analysis of the Texas border economy in August. While the center's research director stressed they are not experts on immigration, the report offers insight into the job market in the state's border cities. We're talking about El Paso, Laredo, uh, McAllen, and Brownsville metropolitan areas. And so those markets, they differ, you know, there's probably 800 miles between, you know, Brownsville and El Paso. So you would expect them to behave a little bit differently, even though they're, they're all on the border. You know, when it comes to job growth, the Valley, so Brownsville and McAllen, they tended to have more robust job growth than El Paso or Laredo have in the last five years. So they're, they're growing at about the state average. So they've added about 10% to their employment in the last five years whereas uh, El Paso has only added about 5% to its employment. Uh, And home sales are down. Home sales have been down in in a lot of metros around the state. 
the other variable though, we not only look at home sales, we look at home prices. And even though sales have been down a little bit in the valley markets or in the border markets, prices have continued to go up in all of those markets. Do you have any theories as to why job growth hasn't been as large in Laredo and El Paso as it has been in Brownsville and McAllen? Usually when a, when one city has a different job growth than another city, you have to sort of look at the details. So there's total employment. That's what I was talking about. But within that total employment, there are lots of different industries. There's manufacturing, there's retail, uh, there's services like uh, finance or business professional jobs. And so when a city grows faster than another city, it has a usually a higher concentration in some of the faster growing markets. Now, all of the border markets are similar in that they have a lot of transportation and logistics. You know, their their economies do a lot of international trade. So the industrial markets on the border in terms of real estate, like warehouses uh, and factories are actually performing really well. Uh, in fact, that's an area within industry. Uh, Laredo is one of the faster growing or it tends to grow all the time is another way to say it. It may be really strong in industrial, whereas you know El Paso is going to have a little more of the regional uh, financial services, uh, other things like that. And then when you get to the valley itself, so Brownsville and McAllen, uh, it's a different mix. You know, agriculture is more important there. Uh, and you also have uh, more tourism. And then you've had some other newer industries. You had the growth in, in things like SpaceX. Now, that's not a huge number of jobs, but it, it over time, that can change the character of the, the local economy. Job growth. Check. Let's wrap up by talking about the state budget with Brooks, the reporter from the Texas Tribune. How did the budget that lawmakers passed in this last session address issues related to the border, whether it be security or anything else related to immigration? Texas has already spent four and a half billion dollars on border security since 2021. This new budget provides for 5.1 billion for border security efforts, you know, in 13 agencies. And that includes what that, you know, I think there was a 4.8 billion or 4.6 billion number being tossed around there for a while, but it's 5.1 total. So that includes the National Guard, that includes the DPS, you know, which is getting, you know, 1.2 billion, the National Guard's getting, you know, 2.3 billion billion we're talking billions and then officer you know the governor's office is getting nearly one and a half billion to pretty much use however he wants you know in terms of of that so there's a significant investment and it's for border security one of the things texas famously has in its coffers is an exceedingly large budget surplus it came out to just under 33 billion dollars this year they're using half of it already so if if the next budget cycle were to start tomorrow, there'd be, you know, 12, 14-ish, depending on how you make do the fuzzy math, you know, depending on how you do the budget math, um, for, you know, 12 to $14 billion of it sitting there, not unspent, you know, unbudgeted. They did that on purpose, right? They don't often have a $32.7 billion. In fact, they've never had a, a surplus that big. And they are not sure what's going to happen in the next two years. Nobody can predict another pandemic. Nobody can predict a natural disaster. There's a million things. And the lawmakers don't want to do, or at least the conserv you know, conservative ones, but pretty much anybody don't want to find themselves in a position where they spend the entire surplus. And then there's a 
glut. I mean, then there's a, uh, you know, a, a deficit going into the next session, right? So when they meet 2025, the plan is to have as much of this half $15 billion, 12, 14, $15 billion in the coffers, you know, as possible. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to Brooks for this episode was an article she wrote that broke down just how much money $33 billion is. The piece that you wrote with your graphic artist that you mentioned illustrated, you know, different ways that $33 billion could theoretically be spent and how that would be divvied up if you were to take it to every Texan. So what were some of the highlights from that piece? That was a fun piece because we what we were trying to do was was wrap our arms around for for people like how much is thirty two point seven billion? Do we know? I mean, nobody really knows. I mean, none of us can picture that. You know, it's a lot of money, right? So, you know, for example, if you know Texas is home to thirty million people or so, if the surplus were passed that equally to every Texan, everyone would get about one thousand eighty eight dollars. That's babies, that's grownups, that's grandparents, that's citizens, that's non citizens, that's everybody. It would pay for a year's supply of guacamole for every Texan, everybody. And that's really important. Yeah. I mean, in Texas, it is. And, you know, <laughs> um, but just a year, it just doesn't sound like enough. You know, I'm going to need a lifetime supply. Um, <laughs> you know, four months worth of groceries, seven months worth of rent, a year and a half of electricity, enough gas to drive from El Paso to Texarkana 14 times, I guess, if you were commuting. <laughs> You mentioned some things maybe left on the table when it comes to the border and the budget this session. What are some of the things that you think could have been addressed or maybe could have had more uh, directed in that direction? The wish list item that didn't make it was known as House Bill 7, right? So it had Democrat and Republican sponsors from the Rio Grande Valley. You know, it would have created the Texas border force but because of what it was changed into on the House floor during the debate. It would have cost a hundred million or on that was one number, 20 million a year for some of it was another number, but there weren't a lot of solid numbers around it, but it was going to be funded no matter what it, it was this extremely broad border initiative, basically. And and it came off as the border security bill, but it wasn't, it was, it just would have put hundreds of millions in over the years into these border communities for just a raft of new stuff like immigration courts. Like there was a whole, they were going to create this whole level, you know, of courts for just immigration cases, which gave a lot of the advocates didn't like that at all. So it wouldn't just have made a new law enforcement division. In fact, that wasn't even the part of the bill until, until it got amended on the floor to, to, you know, include this border unit that made them, you know, that was, uh, would have been civilian, and then they amended it to to be only law enforcement, which is like this whole new division of the DPS. And then they would have, it would have, you know, but, but what was already in the bill was immigration courts. There was going to fund this criminal justice complex in one of the tiny towns and big criminal justice complex in one of the tiny towns down there, um, which has a lot of activity. And it's not like I'm arguing against it. It's hard to say that the border region couldn't use more money for things like economic development and public safety and research grants to communities and, you know, more courtrooms to deal with immigration. I mean, it had some support on both sides, right? So just adding the extra law enforcement element kind of torpedoed that one before it had a chance to really get off the ground. Well, and at the end of the day, who knows how far it would have gone in, you know, negotiations. HB7 seemed to be on a fast track until everything hit the fan over the <laughs> over the border patrol unit. People people didn't like that. My belief is that if you fix the immigration part, then you may see less of a need for security because people will be entering the country legally instead of illegally. 
Aldrete says by focusing on border security, the United States is not only keeping migrants out, it's trapping them here too. If you go back over the years, what we saw in Texas, we would have migrants that would come to the state of Texas and they would start moving up the state, harvesting cotton or citrus in the Rio Grande Valley. They would slowly start moving up and harvesting pecans in Eagle Pass. And then they would move further north and harvest wheat, cotton, and um, grain sorghum and other, other agricultural products. When they were done with those seasons, perhaps over a five or six month period, they had earned enough money that they could go back home and send their money back home. The problem is, as we began to fortify our southern border, we cut off that circularity. They weren't coming to stay here forever. They were coming to earn money during the times that we needed them during harvest season and going back home. But again, once we fortified the border, we cut off that circularity and we ended up trapping a lot of people here in the state who could no longer go back home. For all the focus on border security at the state level, Brooks says from an individual standpoint, immigration has a net positive effect on the economy. I think the most recent things I've seen in like five years ago, last five years, have said there's like a 21, 22 percent return on every dollar spent dealing with whatever costs are associated with undocumented immigration uh, population. They actually return a dollar 21 and change to the economy through, you know, paying sales tax and property taxes through rent paying and, you know, adding to the labor force, that kind of thing. I know, that was a lot, but we made it. From healthcare to job growth to the state budget, immigration impacts the Texas economy just about every way imaginable. I'm Chris Blake at News Radio 1080 KRLD in Dallas, Fort Worth. Thanks for joining me for Texas Wants to Know. If you like the show, please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I wrote and produced this episode with editorial support from Cooper Mall and original music by Michael Eisenstein. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan. <laughs>